Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. So hello, this is Perry Marshall, and I am here with a very interesting guest today for the Evolution 2.0 podcast and the YouTube channel, and this is Michael Heiser. And I have a client named Nick Hardman who introduced us. And Nick said, you got to, got to, got to talk to this guy. And he, you know, kind of pulled us together. And Michael wouldn't be a typical person that I would have in this podcast. He's a very serious biblical scholar and theologian. And I don't usually focus a lot on theology, but he has a very popular podcast called The Naked Bible, which passed 5 million downloads in 2019. That's pretty impressive. And he is a scholar of the Bible and its ancient context. And I think you have to take your hat off to a guy who goes as deep as Michael goes into very scholarly topics and still manages to pull along uh, hundreds of thousands of people. That's impressive, okay? I really respect that. He's graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which maybe later we can get around to these are not the usual theological schools that, <laughs> right. that the, uh, where I came from, people came from. So that maybe we could get into that at some point. Uh, but he's, he's the author of some best-selling books, including The Unseen Realm, and then another one called Supernatural, What the Bible Teaches About the Unseen World and Why It Matters. Well, I wanted to talk to you today, Mike, because I got your book here, The Unseen Realm, and this is a very very deep exploration of what did the biblical authors actually think mm -hmm. about God, angels, demons, spiritual entities, the spirit world. And it's quite interesting. It's very detailed. And so I've got some questions I want to ask you here, but first I want to give you a couple of stories that would give you some background on me. So I grew up in a church where the Bible exegesis was so granular, it took an hour and 15 minutes to get through the first two verses of Romans, and it took five years to get through the whole book. Okay, so Greek, Hebrew, all that kind of stuff. So one time, this musician came to our church, and I was nine years old, and it was a great concert. He did this whole concert. And somewhere in the middle of this concert, he told this story. And it was basically a miracle story. I'm not going to get into it. Okay. But, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. And then we're driving home and I'm sitting in the back seat, and my dad's driving. And he says, well, the board of elders told that guy he's not invited back. <laughs> and uh, because we don't, like, we don't do that stuff. Right. And I did not, by any stretch of the imagination, have the vocabulary to try to disagree with him. But I remember sitting there thinking, well, that was What's just the, the same kind of story <laughs> I read in the New Testament. And I was thinking, well, how do you know that didn't happen? Or how do you know that was, like, somehow different than the way this guy presented it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so fast forward a good 20 years. So my brother's a missionary in China and I'm in the United States and Brian decides he doesn't believe any of this stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. And he basically comes really close to atheism and we're having an argument. And Brian says something very interesting to me. He says, so Perry, he says, I've read the Bible backwards and forwards. I've studied, I got a master's degree in theology. I know the New Testament and Old Testament back alleys and all that stuff. He goes, 
Nowhere does it ever say that the miracles are going to go away. So, Perry, where's the miracles? <laughs> and I go, uh, let me check with my sales manager and get back to you. I didn't have an answer. And because I had spent all of my Christian life in worlds that didn't pay any attention to this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, about a year later, I started finding stuff. I found a lady that got healed from lupus. I was in the room twice, two different times when people who were deaf for 30 years got their hearing back after being prayed for. Mm-hmm. And so you could say I sort of had a sex change operation on that subject. Sure. It's like I've seen stuff. And so I just wanted to start with that as that's my wallpaper for picking up your book. And then I read your book and I go, yeah, yeah, of course. But, you know, not everybody has that benefit. And so I wanted to get your story. Can you rewind and tell me where you came from? Usually theological circles and, you know, people who heal people circles, they don't mix too well. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Yeah, we go where you want to go with this. We've we've got to maintain our subcultural categories, you know, within the Christian realm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I had no uh, spiritual upbringing at all. It wasn't. I'll just tell you this story, okay? So my parents got divorced when I was five, and my brother was three. And my mom got remarried pretty quickly, but she unfortunately married an alcoholic which meant that he couldn't hold a job, which meant that she had to work a lot, which meant that we were shuffled off to my grandma's house a lot. But again, providentially, that was a wonderful thing because her neighbors were Christians, and it was the first time I'd ever met Christians. And their nine-year-old boy was a single mom with four kids. Two of them had cystic fibrosis. And to say they struggled mightily is an understatement. But it was the first time I was introduced to you know, the gospel to really Bible stuff uh, because they would invite me over to play with my friend and we became best friends and, and I would marvel at how much this kid knew about the Bible. I had heard of Jesus. I had heard of Adam and Eve and I had heard of Noah, but I was tapped at that point. And I mean, I just knew next to nothing. And, you know, it, it was, that was sort of where the story starts. Now they eventually, I, I, I became a Christian in high school years later, uh, again, through the influence of this family and this kid. And their church, in my first context, was a fundamental Baptist church. It wasn't King James only or anything like that, but it was strictly cessationist, okay? You know, none of this stuff doesn't happen here. It's not, you know, all that stuff ceased with the New Testament. It was um, young earth creationism all the way. Uh, you know, very, you know, strict boundaries on all these sorts of subjects and discouraged people. Not only did they hold the positions, but they discouraged people from thinking about other views. So, you know, we have some similarities, uh, you and I, uh, in that respect. But eventually, you know, I, I had this sneaking suspicion that it was a good thing to think about other things because at the end of the day, it's not going to harm God. Mm. <laughs> like God will come out okay. <laughs> you know, when the dust clears, he's still going to be there. You know, and so it wasn't a fearful thing for me. And you know, eventually it gets you into trouble. You know, with with your peers and your church and your your immediate again subculture. But I was okay with that. You know, it's like, look, I don't, I may not have the enemies that you have, but I have the friends that you have, and I think that's good. I don't think God is like particularly upset with that. And I just felt like it was a good thing to be challenged. And so when I, I had no direction in high school, my parents had not gone to college. Let me give you this story to illustrate how bad this was, how inept. Okay. I was, I went to take my SATs and I knew you had to take these things, but I didn't know what they were for. And I was, I didn't want to be there because I had to do it on a Saturday and we're, we're supposed to have Saturdays off from school so I get to the end of this test. Of course, I did no prep work for it. I'm just blowing through this thing. And we get to the end of it, and the proctor will not take my exam. Like, like why? She goes, well, you have to put in these codes, you know, at the end to get your scores sent, you know, to a college. And it's like, well, why would I do that? You know, I, I don't know what to put in here. Well, we're not taking the test until you put something in. So 
I put in the numbers for the University of Kentucky. Why? Because I went to high school with Sam Bowie, and he was a recruit. <laughs> He's infamous for being drafted ahead of Michael Jordan, okay? <laughs> okay. So I thought, hey, you know, if I go to Kentucky, I'll know somebody there. And that's literally my thought process. So I have just bounced around. I, I really appreciate Providence. I had no sort of conscious direction at any number of points. And again, I just figured it's, you know, I'll be okay. If God's really there, you know, he's, if he's in charge, he'll fix my boneheaded mistakes. You know, he'll give me some direction when I need it. He'll impede me from just screwing things up too badly. You know, I, I had these thoughts. And when I was in graduate school, like at Penn, I would do things like, okay, I want to know who the biased people are here. Because, <laughs> because <laughs> well, we would, like, <laughs> you know, I was, I'm reading like liberal scholars and stuff like this. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. So I went up to the Semitics reading room at the University of Pennsylvania. This is the Ivy League. And I went through the stacks of the Semitics reading room to see how many books I could find that were published by an evangelical publisher. I found one. Wow. R.K. Harrison's Introduction to the Old Testament. Hmm. Okay. And that taught me a great lesson. Again, I, I really believe that, look, none of these questions have been asked. There's nothing new under the sun here. There's going to be somebody who has had this question, who has thought deeply about it, and it's just you need to give it time to go find an answer. So I, I would also do things like every degree that I pursue, I don't really know what exactly to do, but I'd like it to be harder and more antagonistic because that's probably a good thing. You know, like if I'm going to supposed to get a PhD, this is what I'm going to do. And I would just think thoughts like this. And I, again, maybe I was naive. I don't think I was naive. I think this is good theology. I believe that, uh, you know, God would be okay. Scripture would be okay. None of these questions are new. And it, it, what's probably needed is some good creative thinking about the problem. Tell what me about is. antagonistic. Tell me what you meant by that. That's good. Yeah, I, I wanted to be exposed to um, critical scholarship in the sense that the professors were teaching things and sort of were at the forefront of their field of ways of approaching scripture that either I knew I wasn't or I had been taught was bad, you know, like, like was something to stay away from, like higher criticism and things like that. Mm -hmm. now, when, what you do is you learn that every approach to scripture is presupposition driven. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other side will often refuse to admit that. They're going to be just like the fundamentalists. They're going to their, their system is objective. Of course, it's objective. How could it not be objective? You know, <laughs> there's no assumptions driving the bus here when there are always assumptions driving the bus. And so yes. the question is, yes. is and with, you know, there's going to be something worth thinking there. We're thinking about that's going to come through. And often the key is how is a question or a problem framed? How do we approach, you know, whatever the issue is? Are there really, I mean, what happens in biblical scholarship a lot, especially when it comes to, we'll just be broad now, evangelical versus non-confessional, non-evangelical. What typically happens is you're given either or fallacies all over the place. I, I won lots of hearts and minds one day at Wisconsin when I insisted in a doctoral seminar that a course in logic should be required of all students going through a doctoral program in biblical studies. <laughs> And you can hear the crickets chirp. <laughs> it's just, wow. It's like, okay, I probably won't go down that road too far. <laughs> you know, it, it was just one of those moments where this is so obvious to me that I don't really find either of these trajectories terribly satisfying. So, like, there's some cosmic rule that says I have to pick one. Like, where is that? Mm. You know, but if you question that, then there's something wrong with you, either in a fundamentalist context or in a you know, liberal critical, non-confessional context. And I, I just find that objectionable. I'll confess, sometimes I find it entertaining, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of just the way it is. And I guess it's become kind of a, not a stick that I beat people with, but maybe a little stick that I, I jab people with every now and then that, you know, we ought to just admit that we do this. <laughs> 
you know, like it, it's the most obvious thing in the world, you know, but like, let's just admit it and try to come up with something better, take it apart, put it back together again and, and noodle it. I think there's a lot of value in the antagonistic milieu, a story that greatly shaped my approach to things was my brother-in-law, who's 16 years older than me. His name is Alan Parat. He's a conservative Christian guy who did his PhD at Iowa State in church history. Mm. And he picked it because it was the best library he could find on church history. Mm. But all of his professors were basically atheists and agnostics. Sure. And he had to drive his PhD thesis through this committee and he had to rewrite his thesis five times before they'd finally accept it. Yeah. It's a chess um, match. You know, and then a lot of my evolution journey was forged in the fires of an atheist forum that went on for seven years. And mm -hmm. it's like, you ought to be able to defend what you believe to the harshest possible critics I mean, I think that's kind of what you're, I mean, harsh as possible, maybe, maybe not, but you should be able to weather some severe opposition. That's what I think you're saying. Yeah, I, I don't mind. It sounds a little silly, especially when you're talking about people with PhDs, but I don't mind people who are antagonistic if you can tell that they really want their question answered, like they're really looking for an answer here, as opposed to just do some sort of, thing for attention within their community. I mean, that, that's just a waste of my time. Yeah. And honestly, it's disingenuous. So for those people, I don't have a whole lot of time, but for the other, it's like, yeah, you know that I have time for that because that's me. You know, mm -hmm. let's be honest, you know, that I'm not going to say something or, or just to irritate you or make you mad or, you know, just to see what kind of response I can get. I mean, if I ask you a question, the chances are really, really high that I would like an answer to that, or at least something that I can sort of throw in the, in the blender and, and you know, work with it. So I, I think that is really good. I think it, it's healthy. Um, there is a resistance to it that's sort of almost, I understand both culturally and historically why this is within the Christian community, because, you know, how can I say this without sounding too pejorative? Um, I have been dragged kicking and screaming to the conclusion high percentage of people within churches, and these are serious Christians, okay, they're real Christians, they're not Christian in name only, but they are dramatically undertaught, they are underestimated in terms of their desire, their appetite to think and plunge, mm. and when they don't get that, it allows them, it gives them permission, or in some cases, it'll drive them to compartmentalize their faith, this is a thing I do on Sunday, and outside of Sunday, that's when my brain is engaged, you know. It, we have created that atmosphere, mm. uh, unfortunately. I think, mm. I think the church is largely to blame for that. So I understand that when you have that context, you are going to lose people. They're going to abandon their faith. And so that creates fear within the community. And instead of moving the direction that, well, maybe we ought to find some people who can help our people thoughtfully engage X, Y, or Z they'll just circle the wagons, which is a natural impulse, uh, natural community impulse to do, but it compounds the problem. It doesn't solve it in any way. It makes it worse. So, you know, I, I know enough about you to know, yeah, you run into that every day. It's discouraging, but okay. It's discouraging, but it's still the right answer. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, it's still the right answer uh, as discouraging as it is, as the, as meager as the results are. <laughs> Yeah. it's still the right answer. So yeah, you know, some to, to do it and say it and, and be okay with it. You know, I, I'm okay with people looking at me like I got two heads. I'm kind of used to that now. <laughs> uh, but I, again, I, you just try to look, I'm your friend. I'm asking you this question. I'm telling you your argument stinks, you know, f because I don't want you to run into someone who hates your faith and wants to destroy you. I don't want them to do it. I should be the person to do that. Actually, your pastor should be the person to do that. So I am your friend. You should be willing to have this conversation with a friend before you, you know, instead of having it with an enemy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how did you stumble into the unseen realm? And that is the correct word, stumble. <laughs> 
you know, I, again, I, I'm from a non-charismatic context, so I've never seen anything miraculous. But I, I actually think, again, I understand this. We tend to think that miracles are happening when something truly out of the ordinary happens in front of our, our eyes. And that's a legitimate categorization. Okay, that's fair. But I think that it's a mistake to believe that God is only present and active when those things are occurring. Mm -hmm. I think when we can all look back, this is why I love movies like Signs, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, when you look back on your life, your life is full of these, do I make the right turn or the left turn moments? You know, do I think thought A and go down that road or do something else? And when you can get enough perspective to look back on life and see that your life is a concatenation of these sorts of things, then, Lord willing, it should dawn on you, you know what? This is providence. This is how providence works. It's the unseen head. It's, again, the assemblage of these things that didn't draw any attention at all. And if you're operating within a scriptural worldview, why are those decisions made? Well, they're typically made because of some external influence. Well, how'd that influence happen? It could be a person. Maybe you can't even think that a person was involved. Ah, oh, those are the really interesting ones, because how did you get to that point? You know, in other words, do you believe that there's a providential, you know, God that's interested in your life and the life of the people around you enough to actually steer you and put you into a circumstance where he knows you're going to have to make this decision? You know, he's not going to take away your free will because that would destroy what's known as the image of God. The image of God is actually something functional. It's not a quality in you. Based this on Hebrew grammar, and I promise I won't go down that road. But I mean, in other words, I'm not contriving the view. It's not my own unique view, but the image of God is a status. It's representation. It's God makes us his proxies by whatever process, you know, that is. That's our status. And so to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish, he shares his attributes with us. You're familiar with the category, the communicable attributes. That's what it is. Well, one of those is free will. And so you have a lot of Christians that want to give, want to allow God your God, I grant you permission, you know, to share certain attributes with us, except for free will, you know, mm. because we all want to be Calvinists, you know, it, 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 or something like that. You know, mm. <laughs> we're going to take wow. that one back. No, if you take it back, then you lose the ability to perform as God's imager, and the whole thing is undermined. You know, people don't realize how one thing relates to the other. And so, you know, God puts you in a situation providentially, and, and there's a decision he'd like you to make. He's not going to force you to make it. If you don't make it, he's going to try again because he's interested, right? If you do make it, great. That's a blessing. God can use you, and you're on to the next thing. You know, but your, life is just a series of these things. It includes evil. Why is there evil? Well, because God made the decision to grant us use of, you know, partial use of his attributes, one of which is freedom, and that's why we have evil, because people abuse the good gifts of God. It's not God's behind it. You know, come on, sin, sin. I got to have this sin to make this other thing work. You know, it... it just a distorted view. We have lots of distorted views about God and biblical theology. And, and it's because, again, we want to maintain our subcultures. We're threatened when one a person in our subculture starts thinking the way another subculture does or goes completely off, you know, off the reservation to the non-Christian world. I mean, we would just be so much stronger. Yeah, okay, we're going to lose some people. But guess what? We're losing people anyway. So, you know, we're <laughs> We're going to lose some people, but it, this is going to be a service in the long run to the solid status of the community. And if the community is solid, then what we're supposed to be doing in the wider culture, representing God, being God to the world, and doing the thing we would do, which is creativity and technology, you know, all this kind of stuff, we would just be so much better off. But there's this fear thing that just has gripped Christianity because uh, of so many different forces, you know, intellectual, social, you know, self-destructive lifestyles. I mean, just, you know, I get it, but it's just a shame, you know, it's just a shame. So I tend to think that, again, we ought to be thinking about God being interested all the time in things that we don't see. Just assume that he's interested and assume that something's going on hmm. because it is, you don't have to look for the spectacular. You might get it which should be kind of cool, but you might not. And that's okay because guess what? You know, back to your brother's, you know, question to you, wasn't it nice of your brother? And again, this is being accusatory here, but it was nice of your brother to assume that you had the whole panoply of human experience living in your head. 
that you could answer his question about where the miracles are. <laughs> like, you know, all of a sudden you're omniscient, you know, and you can't come up with an answer. Well, I'm going to junk my faith now because my brother's not omniscient. I mean, <laughs> he puts you in that situation when it's just not a fair characterization. And even more than that, yeah, guess what? There's miracles in the New Testament. But you know what? Most of the time they were doing ministry in the early church. They're just doing mundane things. It's not like a miracle a minute. You can't right. get that and read the New Testament. It's not a miracle a minute. Things happen. <laughs> yep, God intervenes. But most of it is just boring drudgery and, you know, good Lord, are we going to, you know, is somebody going to martyr us today? You know, it, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And again, you have to just widen the perspective and the scope of how you're thinking about the New Testament and the picture that it presents of God's activity in this thing we call the church and the world for that matter. So take us back 3000 years, maybe even 5,000 years. And we are before the Greeks and we're not platonic and get us into, in your book, you talk about how the writers of Genesis in particular had a view of God that I don't know that we are that familiar with. Yeah. Help us unpack that. A lot of this discussion can sound really complicated, but it's actually really simple. If you're someone living five, you know, 10,000 years ago, whatever, you're, you have some really simple beliefs. You wonder about, and you point this out in your lectures too, you know, all these, this big picture stuff. How did we get here? Who's responsible for this? I know I'm not. And <laughs> my wife isn't, you know, my mate or my brother, I mean, he's not. So there's got to be something else going on here. And so if you can't get answers from what you experience with your senses, you're very naturally going to gravitate to something beyond you. So you have this assumption, something bigger than me is responsible in some way for all this stuff, including me. It's a very simple thought, but it's equally profound, but it's very simple. And you have another thought. Well, you know, in this world, life is kind of better if it's organized. You know, it just kind of works better as opposed to chaos. Yeah. So I'll bet that whatever other entities, the deities, whatever, that inhabit this spiritual world, this other world, this otherness, they're smarter than us. So if we can see that order is good, they probably can too. Hmm. They would probably prefer order and hierarchy than just pure chaos. So again, it's a very simple thought. And, you know, the ancient person is going to be thinking in these modes. And so they're going to try to describe how it is they're conceiving these things through the vocabulary they have. And the vocabulary they have is naturally linked to what is accessible with their five senses, the things that they experience. And so they're going to be using metaphors like the planting metaphor for where babies come from. Now they know what sex is obviously, but they're going to use a planting metaphor because they're used to that. You put something in the ground, it grows. Okay. You know, life comes from the earth. Well, you know, I put the seed in this woman and life comes, you know, she has a baby. So it's a very natural, you know, metaphor for how we get this baby. Why do we have these weird laws in the Old Testament about seminal emissions and menstruation and blood and, you know, you're rendered ritually unclean? Well, it's because if you lose enough blood, you're going to die, okay? And if you die, then, then you're not alive. So God is the source of life. So we're going to view blood and the thing that makes babies as something, you know, from God that God gives us so that we stay alive. Hmm. Life force versus death. And since life is associated with the deity, if you lose one of these fluids, you can't enter his presence for a while. Okay? You know, again, these are really simple ritualistic thoughts that reinforce, again, a certain set of ideas. Now, when it comes to the unseen world, you know, circle back to your question here, you know, we assume that, you know, we have this other reality and that it's organized, and so what the biblical writers do, and not just biblical writers, but the ancient Near Eastern you know, people who are, you know, have given us their literature, is they organize that other world. They use typically metaphors of royal court language. 
you know, mm. divine council, court. God is a king. The king has courtiers. He has an entourage. The family members get the most important positions. You know, it, it, there's just this kind of thinking. And so when the biblical writers are describing, you know, how this other world runs, they're going to use the language at their disposal. What else would they use? Language that isn't at their disposal? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. They're not downloaded with some special knowledge uh, to be able to express this. And I, I always get into this when, I, when we talk about, you know, creation and evolution. I'm on the biologos side. And that's, this is why I was interested in, honestly, I, I don't see any problem with your view, Perry. <laughs> good. That's good. I don't care if you front load the design. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't matter to me, okay? Because credit is given where it's due. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's good, okay? Mm-hmm. But we tend to, and the creationism stuff is a really good example where we tend to assume that the Bible and the biblical writers were writing what they write to answer our questions. Okay. Amen, brother. Like they're writing to us. No, they're writing to the people that were alive when they were alive. You know, otherwise, you know, this is what I call, a lot of Christians have what I call the X-Files view of inspiration. That is, you know, the prophet wakes up one morning and he's making breakfast and all of a sudden he's zapped, you know, and his mind goes blank. He uses the, loses the use of his arms and hands and something happens and he wakes up and he looks down and there's a scroll there and he goes, man, I can't wait to read what I just wrote. (laughs) That's cool. You know, like, like we, I, I have said to many audiences, if you strip the humanity out of this doctrine we call inspiration, you undermine it. Because what you actually find in the text doesn't conform to this picture. You know, if everybody's getting downloaded with advanced knowledge, well, then why isn't there a biblical Hebrew word for brain? You know, like, is the seat of emotions and rationality? You know, why do we get kidneys and reins and heart and all the, you know, why is that? We make these assumptions about what's going on, and they just don't hold. If the Holy Spirit's behind, you know, the, the prophet, you know, whispering in his ear every word, I'll put a comma there, no, use a semicolon, you know, is it this dictation or sort of pseudo dictation? Because lots of people don't want to, they want to deny that they view the dictation view, but their view really isn't much distinguishable from it. But then yeah. why do we have, you know, like in the first three verses of Ezekiel, a change from the first to the third person? Mm. The Holy Spirit can't make up his mind who he is. Am I the first person? Am I the third person? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. And literally every page of the Bible has something that defies a mechanistic X-Files view of inspiration. All of it. And that's a serious problem. So, you know, what we have, what the Bible is, is an ancient document. It describes the world of the writers in the language they have at their disposal. It describes their conception of the other world, again, using their own language and their own experience, their own metaphor to express certain ideas. It's intelligent, vastly more intelligent than we are. It's ordered. It has hierarchy. It has rebellion. It has obedience. You know, there's good and evil there. You know, there's a lone creator who is unique that created, you know, populated this whole world. And we know that because of Job 38. God already had kids. He already had a family before human creation, which is very instructive because it tells you what God wants. Mm. Okay, God wants, what does God want? What's the whole thing about? God wants a family. He'd like to come to earth. And you know what? If he wants a different kind of family, he's got to create a world for them to live in or else they're just going to die. You know I mean? It, so you got to make a place that they can live and they can't come to me. So I better go to them. So we're going to have this thing called Eden, which, you know, again, you've read Unseen Realm. It's just the divine abode, the cosmic abode and the way it's described. And so God comes to earth. Why? Because he likes kids and he wants, he wants to actually blend these families. He makes them fit for sacred space which is a unique idea. That's a unique biblical idea in the context of the whole ancient Near East. You read other ancient Near Eastern texts, humans do not belong in sacred space, ever. They are the exception if they ever get there. But why don't you expand? This sounds really interesting. Why don't you expand on this whole thing about sacred space that you're just on now? This sounds- the, The imaging idea democratizes both what God is trying to accomplish in creation. Because in the, in the ancient Near Eastern world, who gets called the imager of the deity? It's always the king. You know? The kings are the only ones that get described this way. 
Well, in the Old Testament, it's everyone. It's every human being. Mm. Every human being is a family member or ought to be. This is God's original plan. I, I want to create a family. I want a family. I want humans with me. They are my image. They are my representation. I'm going to come to earth. I want to, and also, I not only want a family, I want partners. Because, yeah, you know, I could transform this world, this entire world that I've created and make it like Eden. But you know what? I like to have my kids participate in that. So I could do all this myself, sure. But I like it this way. I want to see them image me. I want to see my kids, you know, grow up and do the things dad does. (laughs) I mean, again, these simple thoughts. I want kids. I want a family. I want partners. It's not slaves. Again, ancient Near Eastern, you know, religion is filled with that. Humans are just slaves. They're underlings and, you know, hairless apes or whatever. You know, it, it, that, that isn't the view you get here. It's family. It's partnership. It's togetherness. And these are really important theological concepts that distinguish the Judeo-Christian, you know, worldview. Because all this tracks into the New Testament everywhere. Yes. That distinguish what's going on here in this body of sacred literature as opposed to something else. So the comparisons are really important, but so are the contrasts. And this story that we're given is what I try to do in Unseen Realm is I try to look. This story is going to both emerge and make more sense. Things will connect throughout the Bible. You'll be able to trace threads through the Bible if you just do a simple thing. If you just read the Bible with the ancient Israelite in your head or the first century Jew, you know, when you get to the New Testament, just try to read it through their eyes. Don't make it use your vocabulary. Don't make it use, answer your questions. Realize the Bible was written to them, but it's written for our benefit, but it wasn't written to us. It's written for us. So try to read it like they would. Try to understand the author the way he was trying to communicate to his audience. In the church, a lot of people pay lip service to this. This is where I get in trouble with in Christian communities. Because I'll say stuff like this, and, and it, you know, honestly, it's true. You know, they'll pay lip service to this, and they'll start talking about pottery and you know, donkeys and you know, all this archaeological stuff. They'll skip the worldview stuff. Mm. Because that's threatening. Because they bought into the X-Files view of the Bible, that the Bible has to be unique. It can't be like this other stuff. Didn't they live back then? Aren't they people? Are they like, are they like super people? You know, did, did God like download information into their heads that nobody else got? And if he did that, why don't we have a whole list of things covered? Again, these are, you just start probing the assumptions yeah. and looking at the text. I mean, I say crazy things in churches like, hey, we ought to have a view of inspiration that actually conforms to what's in the Bible. <laughs> well, wouldn't that be cool? We could have a long conversation about that. It sounds like you and I are pretty simpatico on these questions. Yeah. I I came to the, I let the science people do the science because the biblical writers, you know, God's not looking at Isaiah saying, you know, gosh, I wish I could have you write this book, but you're just so stupid. You know, you just don't know what's going on with physics and astronomy. Wait, I got a great idea. I'll download all that information into your head and then I'll let you write. Well, like, like if you carry that assumption through, if he produces all this stuff that would satisfy a 21st century technological audience, guess what? None of his readers are going to get it. Yeah. It's like undermines the whole communicative enterprise. And not only that, but until we reached the 21st century, it was kind of useless. I mean, these are the logical conclusions to these assumptions. But, but they don't get examined very often. And the Bible's fine if you just let it be what it is. It'll be fine. It's going to survive. It'll be here. And it will, it will come alive to you in ways that you never really realized that it could. And then you can start asking yourself really important questions like, wow, you know, I do have questions in my own modern world. I wonder what the biblical text can sustain as far as the panoply of possibilities for this modern question that I have, you know, is there anything in scripture that would actually sort of, you know, that this would violate? And if it's not, well, like, like, wow, I've got a whole playground here. I've got options I can consider, you know, because I know it wasn't written to answer this specific question, but it might give us ideas and principles and thought trajectories that are really helpful, you know, maybe give us boundaries where we need them like ethically or something like that, 
or there's something lurking in the text that kind of opens the door to this. I lecture a lot on Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and a lot of people don't realize. It's just simple observation here. Again, if you're reading the text in Hebrew, you know, Bereshit bara, you know, Elohim, okay, in the beginning God created. Well, guess what? In the Hebrew text, there's no definite article before beginning. There's no word the. So you should try to translate it without using the word the. That's a little hard, which is why some translations will say things like, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and empty. And that presupposes matter, material. Before you even get to verse 3, let there be light. Now, it changes the way mm -hmm. you perceive the whole scene. Grammatically, that's perfectly allowable. It's not traditional, but it's absolutely on the table. So there are things like this that a close examination of the text can, you know, as people who, you know, would have a high view of Scripture and were theists and were Christians and whatnot, it gives us some maybe not raw material to think and answer our question with, but it opens the door to legitimizing the inquiry, which is really important. So what does it mean then? And maybe you can tie this into the ancient Near East mindset. What is the import of what you just said? Okay, there's no definite article in beginning, not in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Therefore, how could we see this differently? Yeah, they had the, the same options that we do today. <laughs> okay. You know, you've got an external creation event for everything that is, okay, with it, by an external creator. And then it, you, know, you have this moment that everything goes from there. They're going to rule out, well, we made it. That's easy. How about eternal existence of matter? Now, they're not necessarily thinking in those terms, but what they do, like Mesopotamia, before you have the, the world of human experience, okay, you'll also have other material present, but they'll give the, those things deity names. And so they can conceive that there were, were these other life forms or whatever, if you want to use that terminology, around before this. And so they don't mind those pre-existing because they, they become the ingredients for the stuff that we do know and experience. So they'll try to kind of wrap their heads around it that way. And they never stop to ask the question, okay, well, where did those like matter deity guys come from and girls, you know, where'd they come? They, they don't even bother with that question because, it, you know, for them, it's sufficient to have them as a cause for this other stuff. And we don't really question where, you know, where the gods come from and all that kind of stuff. But there, it shows you that they're at least willing to think of uh, some sort of pre-existence idea, you know, going on, that, you know, trying to approach it that way. So it's a step back from, you know, like a, being spoken into existence or a Big Bang or something like that. It's actually a little, little step beyond that. And I, I think we're sort of in the same quandary. You know, I, I'm not a science guy, so I, I let the science people do the science thing. And I have to admit, I was probably influenced in grad school because, again, my original context was young earth, you know, kind of creationism. Well, when I went to grad school at Wisconsin, our church, and again, this was a serious church. These are real Christians. We're not just sticking the name on the door, you know, so people come and give us money. Uh, these were serious Christians. We were dominated, and I mean dominated, by people in the hard sciences. We had the head of the botany department as an elder. We had a professor of electrical engineering. We had two research physicists. We had an entomologist. We had a couple biologists. We had a chemist. You know, the grad schools, and the, you know, I'm like, hey, where are the humanities people? I'm like the only one here. You know, everybody else is a scientist. <laughs> you know, but it was really good for me. And I, I was, there was like one other person in a humanities field as a grad student. This, this was a church that was really heavily, you know, attended you know, by graduate students and, and professors. And it was good to sort of be the minority there because you get into conversations. Okay, like, why do you see it this way? And how do you articulate this idea or, you know, to friends or whatever? How do you, you know, parse this out in your head? And so that was really, really good exposure because I couldn't question their commitment to the Lord, to a high view of Scripture. I mean, I, I couldn't question any of those things. They don't mm -hmm. have any, anything to nitpick. And it was my first real exposure to some rigorous-minded individuals that just did not take what you would sort of, again, in my context, kind of growing up, 
which you would think, well, if you're really a Christian, you think this. No, actually, no. <laughs> it's, it's a whole right. lot wider than that. So I tend to just, I'm going to let those people do their work. If you're a Christian scientist and you're not a young earth creationist, you're in Romans 1. You're suppressing the truth, you know, <laughs> because this is, <laughs> this is how it gets portrayed. Like you secretly mm-hmm. know better, but, you, you know, no, you got to trust people at some point that they're really being honest. They're not, you know, sinister in, in, <laughs> in asking the questions. They're, they're just not, you know, and it, be okay with that. Just be okay with that. So I, I think that's really uh, invaluable. And for me, it didn't say, well, now that you've met a lot of people who aren't young earth creationists, you need to find a different way to interpret Genesis 1, 1 through 3. I, I, that was never a thought I had. I already mm. knew because of Hebrew grammar that all these things were on the table. And it's mm. like, oh, yeah, you know, that is sustainable. You know, that might be the best way to think about it because if God's, you know, the ultimate origin of both things, you know, what we call in theology, special revelation and general revelation, and he's not a schizophrenic, these things should probably align. Mm-hmm. And so we ought to be asking, what's the most coherent alignment? What might that be? And there might be two or three ways to align them. Okay, well, now, which one do I think is, has the least problems or is the most plausible? I mean, that's where it becomes fun. It gives you something to think about as opposed to, well, I've just checked all the boxes now and now I can compartmentalize, you know, my Christian experience and, you know, go off and play fantasy football because I want to engage my brain somewhere. You know, (laughs) we have a lot of people in this situation, you know, they got all the boxes checked and they really assume they don't have anything to think about anymore when there's lots to think about and God isn't threatened. He's not threatened and you shouldn't be either. So tell me a little more about, well, stumbling into the unseen realm. So what caused you to go, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, it was. Maybe I want to write a book about this. Maybe this is a really, you could write a book about a lot of things. It was my Psalm 82 sort of watershed moment that I I allude to in the very first chapter and in the introduction a little bit to the unseen realm. I was killing a few minutes before church one day. And the only other person who was in the humanities, we were sitting there, he's in the Hebrew department too. And I don't remember what the conversation was, but I'll never forget the way it ended. He said, you know, he had his Hebrew Bible with him and he opened it up and he said, you need to read Psalm 82 in Hebrew. And so I did. It's, it's not hard. You know, Elohim, which is, again, is a common term for God in the, in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Elohim Nitzav Ba'adat El. Okay, God, singular, and we know that it's singular because Nitzav is a singular participle. God, capital G, takes his place or takes his stand in the divine assembly or the divine council. And then the next line says, Bekerev Elohim, same word as the other Elohim, Bekerev Elohim Yishpot, in the midst of the gods. It has to be plural because you can't be in the midst of a singular entity. In the midst of the gods, he passes judgment. And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, boy, that looks like a pantheon. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that sure looks like a pantheon. And I also had other thoughts, like, how in the world? I mean, I wasn't a newbie. I had taught for five years. I taught about 15 different courses. I'm in a doctoral program in Hebrew studies. I've never looked at that verse in Hebrew. And it was disturbing. But then, again, providentially, I had another thought. I bet Jesus knew that verse. (laughs) (laughs) Probably did, yes. I bet Paul knew it. I bet lots of the disciples knew it. So there must be a way that this works with the rest of the articulation about the uniqueness of the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and Jesus is the incarnate Yahweh there must be some way that this passage works with that. What is that? And I didn't get any help. Evangelicals, like, I'm already on, you know, ground that evangelicals fear to tread. You know, when, when you go into Psalm 82, and actually, that's what it says. It's, I didn't write the Bible, but I know how to read it. Okay, that's what it says. And the non-confessional, the critics love this verse because it allows them to justify their idea 
that Israelite religion, like every other religion, evolved from polytheism to monotheism. Which, as an evangelical, on one hand, that really wouldn't bother me because there's no obligation for God to dispense equal information to all the writers at the same time about himself. Like, you know, God doesn't have his hands tied to do that. So they could have grown in this understanding. I get that. But it made no sense to me because, and this actually became my dissertation. So I'm, I'm at the University of Wisconsin, a very liberal school, in a Hebrew department. All my professors, except for one, are Jewish. And everybody buys into this worldview. And there I am in my dissertation arguing that it's nonsense. Because if we have this neat trajectory, this neat evolution from polytheism to monotheism, and we're taught in biblical studies that this happened around the time of Deutero-Isaiah, you know, during the exile. And after they finally get, oh, there's only one and all the other, these other gods don't exist. You know, we've, we've achieved the breakthrough of, of monotheism. If that makes sense, why are there 180 references to plural Elohim in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Why is it that the Septuagint is not afraid to take Elohim and use a plural Greek term, theoi, for it? Why do we get New Testament writers quoting some of these bad or primitive passages in the New Testament? Why, why is that? It looks like a lot of people didn't get the memo. You know, it just didn't make any sense. Because there's so much, and the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, these are not like liberals. I mean, these are people who went out and lived in the desert because they didn't like the temple rituals. <laughs> yeah. They're right. just really theologically uptight, okay? You don't use our calendar, we're out of here. We're going to go live in the desert and pretend we have our own temple now. Okay, so they're really conservative theologically. But they, again, there's like 180 references to this. So the stuff that is pre-exilic, that's polytheistic, shows up well afterwards. Why did Judaism used to teach there were two powers in heaven? Two good mm. guys. Not Zoroastrian good and evil, but, but a Godhead. Why is that? You know, I kept, when I started trying to investigate and, and, and trying to solve this, this problem that I had run into, I start finding all this information. And again, I can't say the evangelical view was satisfying because they just said, oh, the gods there in Psalm 82, they're just people really like the gods turn into people at some point, you know, and then, you know, the, the liberal side would say, yeah, well, that's polytheism. And neither view was, was terribly satisfying and neither view made much sense in light of the mm. whole sweep of what's going on here. Mm. And again, it wasn't until you actually look for those in your audience who are having trouble sleeping. I recommend this. Look up all the places where Elohim occurs in the Hebrew Bible. Okay. Use it. Use a concordance to do that. And then look each one up and by your 15 or 20 and you'll probably be asleep. But you have to do that kind of thing. So, like, how do the biblical writers use the term? They use it for five or six different things. That mm. alone tells you that we have a problem in the way this is being thought about. Because if Elohim was about, if the term itself meant a specific set of unique attributes, the biblical writers would never use it of other things. Because they take great pains to deny certain attributes to all other gods. Yes, so right. we have a disconnect right away. And, and I discovered that the problem was terms like monotheism you know, are, are modern and they're late, but we are trained culturally and in our churches to think this way. When I see the letters G, O, and D on a screen or on a piece of paper, my brain defaults to a, and all these terms are important, to a specific set of unique attributes. The letters G, O, and D point to a specific set of unique attributes. Well, the biblical writers didn't use Elohim that way because they don't use Elohim of only one being. They use it of the deceased human dead in 1 Samuel 28. They use it for the God of the nations. They use it for goddesses. Biblical Hebrew doesn't have a word for goddess, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Uh, they use it for, you know, sort of well, the demonic figures in Deuteronomy 32. I mean, they're using it for lesser beings. No biblical writer in his right mind would think this thought. Yeah, my, my dead five-year-old or my dead aunt or my mom and dad, they're on an ontological par with the God of Israel. Well, right. they're all Elohim, so that must mean they're all the same, right? But this is what you run into when you buy into the assumptions of this evolutionary trajectory based on this word. And the solution actually was very simple. You know, when it finally hit me, was, you know what? You would not use the term Elohim 
to describe a being with a unique set of attributes because it's just used very generically. You would use the term, and it's an appropriate term, to describe a member of the disembodied spiritual world. Oh. Period. Now, in that world, there is rank and there is hierarchy. There is ontological distinction. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is an Elohim, and there are many Elohim. Hebrew Bible says that. But none of those other Elohim are him. He is unique in all sorts of ways. And so the Bible assigns him things like omniscience, omnipotence, sovereignty, creative power, and all this kind of stuff. And it denies those attributes to the other Elohim. So you get what we might call traditional theism, not by the word Elohim. You don't get it by that word. You get it by the way Yahweh is described. Again, the controversial, if you can call it controversial, I guess it is controversial. thing that I have said in many lectures is, look, None of the words we have at our disposal work very well. Monotheism doesn't work because we tend to define it as no other gods exist. Mm. It's a 17th century term. That doesn't work because, you know, your Bible denies that. There are other Elohim out there. When the Bible says that Yahweh is the God of all gods, guess what? It means what it says. It doesn't say Yahweh is the God of all gods, wink, wink, that we really know aren't there. I mean, I can say that. You know, if that's true, I can say it too. It just, again, it doesn't make any sense. So we just have this problem, again, with the way things are are expressed. Monolatry is better. You worship only one. But that doesn't really comment on do others exist. Henotheism doesn't work because henotheistic systems assume that the one at the top is, can be toppled, can be replaced, Mm -hmm. that like they're interchangeable. And that is not the theology of the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament. No, not at all. I mean, none of these words work. So what I tell people is, look, scrap the vocabulary. Scrap the labels. Get away from the labels. Get away from the categories, which is really hard for people. But you're better off describing what a biblical writer thought rather Mm. than sticking a label on it. If you walked up to Abraham and you said, hey, Abraham, are there other gods? He would say, duh. And then if you followed that by saying, oh, yeah, I, I get it, and they're all like the same, right? He'd probably just punch you in the face, okay? I mean, the, we have to let them describe for us what they think rather than our modern rationalistic compulsion to stick a label on it, put it in a bucket, and now we're done. Okay, we're not done. There's just lots of things to think about. Well, so what you present here then is a world where the ancient person thought of a disembodied spiritual world. There is a king of that world, but there are other members, and it's a family, it's a hierarchy. It intimates what it's a template should it's, imitate. Right. right. The unseen realm, the unseen world in, in the Bible is actually a template for how we should mm. view ourselves, mm. how we should view God's relationship to humanity. And, since we have to deal with rebellion, both in the supernatural realm and the human realm, the story of the Bible is really the story of God never giving up on the original plan. There is no plan B. This is why the revelation ends with a global Eden. God gets what he wants. He gets a family. The whole world is Eden. There is no more sea, which is a wonderful ancient metaphor. The sea was a metaphor for chaos. It doesn't mean, oh, I guess there's no salt water. In the new-. No, it means there's no, <laughs> there's no more sea. Sea is where the Leviathan, the chaos beast, lived that, that had to be tamed and restrained. The wilderness mm. is another metaphor of chaos and darkness and death. Humans don't live in the ocean. They, they can't. They would die, all right? I mean, these simple ideas. And so everything is Eden at the end. God has his family. Things have come full circle. You know, we didn't even get the chance chance to talk about the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, which is about the fragmentation of humanity. That is Mm. healed. The nations are healed. Because the original vision of God's family is not divided into races. It's not divided into anything. It's human. Okay? There's your simple one ingredient. You know, your one qualification. But post-rebellion, we have to be redeemed. We have to be brought back into that family. 
either the rift between us and God has to be healed. And so the, the story of the Bible is God inserting himself into human history at various points to kickstart the Edenic plan. That's where we get Israel. You know, and for a while, it's a theocratic thing and a monarchy. And then that's, by definition, designed to go away. How do we know that? Because the monarchy gets talked about as including Gentiles in certain passages. By definition, mm. that's not, you know, the theocracy is planned obsolescence, all right? So, you know, we, we get all these things, and the story of Scripture is God working the plan. And he makes covenants with people, with humans, to kickstart the plan. And guess what? Humans screw up infallibly, all right? And God isn't surprised by that. And so what is God going to do? Is God going to sit there and think, man, this was a crappy idea. You know, why, why didn't I see this coming? You know, I should have thought of something better or I regret having humans. No, what mm. he does is, you know what? I'm not going to cheat and change the rules of the game midstream. I'm not going to wipe the table clean or change the rules. I know a way that this is still going to work. Yes, my covenants are with humans. And yes, back in Genesis 1, humans were supposed to be the partner. So yes, I'm committed to having humans be what they are and still get my way. How do we do that? Oh, God becomes a man and fulfills the covenants. and He's the only one who could do it. So God doesn't cheat. You know, Christ is a full human being. Yeah. The plan goes through. God doesn't cheat. He doesn't alter it. He doesn't eliminate. There is no plan B. And, you know, the, the Old and New Testament is, is just the story of how that plays out. But we don't really see it because we sort of don't think about it in archetypal or metanarrative terms. We have people in our churches that are, they have a lot of Bible data in their heads, but they have no framework for it. <laughs> Honestly, they don't. They don't have a, a, like a structured way of thinking about the data. They can just cite verses and stuff like that. But every, you know, unless you start looking at it again, the way I'm, I'm recommending in the book, you won't be able to see the interconnectedness of the thoughts. And so you'll have lots of data, but you won't quite know what to do with it all. And it just, it doesn't really go anywhere. It just sort of is, which I wow. think is really unfortunate. So I remember sitting at the University of Wisconsin-Madison when I solved my Psalm 82 question, which became part of my dissertation. I remember sitting there because once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it, it just all these things that just opened up. I knew I would lose friends. I knew I'd probably lose jobs, you know, down the road. You know, letting, letting the Bible just be what it is. It's an ancient document. It's not from our time and our place. We just let it be what it is and let the chips fall. But I remembered how, I, again, I'm not a newbie. I'm a doctoral student. I've been a Christian now at that point for you know, 25 years, whatever it was but that I am not able to read the Bible the same way again. And things are just opening up to me. And I had the thought, you know, 98% of Christians are never going to have this experience. They are never going to have this experience because we're not taught this way. And so I had the idea, what I think I can do is I can take biblical scholarship and try to make it decipherable. On, on this topic and, and other topics to try to get people to read scripture again, get rid of the filter. This is why we call my podcast, The Naked Bible. We don't care about denominational confessions. We don't care about creeds. We don't care about filters, but let's just try to read scripture in its own context and just sort of see where we land. And if I can do that, that'll be a good thing. That will help other people to have this experience that I had. So that's why we do it. And that's really what Unseen Realm is. Well, for those who have data or maybe even don't have data and want some structure for the data, I can definitely recommend the Naked Bible podcast and the Unseen Realm book. Very interesting book. Seems to have made some waves out there. So congratulations. Are there any other resources you'd want people to know about? Yeah, people should know that there's a light, L-I-T-E version of Unseen Realm. It's called Supernatural. The cover's pink. It kind of looks the same. So we did that. It's a distillation of the core elements of Unseen Realm without all the footnotes and the sources and the argumentation. So that's very useful. Uh, for new believers, I self-published something called What Does God Want? Uh, through my uh, nonprofit because I want to get it translated and, and give it away. I think it's a very useful beginning point, especially to a postmodern culture. 
you know, to help them think about the Bible, not as a set of propositions and rules and regulations and, you know, just thought assertions, but as a story that talks about what salvation is and is not, that those sorts of simple thoughts. So I think those are good, you know, resources. There are other books, you know, bunch of books most of them are drill downs into unseen realms so unseen realm and then the simpler overview uh, supernatural good places to start that's great well this has been very fun and i'm really glad that we got introduced to each other so thank you for a little bit of your time today yeah thank you for having me and, and i'm glad for the same because i learned some useful things you know, listening to your lectures all right so i don't feel damaged <laughs> Well, that's good. We I feel, I feel assisted. <laughs> well, good. Well, Michael, hope to meet you in person sometime. Thanks for right, being on. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.